Hey everybody, it's Drags, and this week on episode five of Jungle Roar, a Cincy football podcast, we talk about the biggest impressions of the Bengals' preseason opening win against Tom Brady and those Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers with someone who was actually at Raymond James Stadium covering all the action for the Cincinnati Inquirer. That would be Charlie Goldsmith. Follow him on Twitter at Charlie G double underscore. I got that right, Charlie, right? You did. You, thank you. Nobody gets the second underscore. Yeah, I know. Well, when I see it extra long on my uh, Twitter feed, I'm like, Charlie, really? You couldn't come up with a better Twitter handle than Charlie G a double underscore? I'm just you fine. get what you get. The, the story <laughs> is that at Charlie Goldsmith is a yeah. guy who will cure your problems by looking at you. So some people mistake me for him on Twitter and ask me to solve their problems. You so could to make, uh, sure, to make sure there's no confusion. I don't even have Goldsmith in the last name. Yes, I, I, I see what you did there. So um, I can totally understand that. Uh, looking at something and solve all your problems. That sounds like what you did on Saturday night uh, when you uh, covered the Bengals down in Tampa Bay. You had a terrific uh, recap of the game and, and uh, some of the biggest takeaways. And some of those biggest takeaways um, uh, jived with uh, some of my biggest takeaways. Uh, from that 1914 win over Tampa Bay. I'm going to start right away with uh, the guy that uh, I think everybody was talking about after the game for different reasons. And that would be Joseph Asai, the rookie out of Texas, the edge slash uh, defensive lineman. He really did stick out uh, from the very first series uh, when with some help from Trey Hendrickson on the outside edge of the tackle, he twisted in, got a sack on Tom Brady. That's a hell of a way to begin your NFL preseason career. There are some things you can really look for in the preseason. And with the Bengals, you know, I wasn't expecting to see a ton of Trey Hendrickson and Sam Hubbard. I wasn't expecting to see a ton of most of the starters. Right. But you did have the opportunity to see the Bengals' biggest weakness on the defense from last season. And that was depth on the defensive line. Remember what the Bengals did? They drafted three guys. They brought in a bunch of new guys. They got Josh Tupo back. And, well, that new-look defensive line showed its potential on Saturday. You know, you mentioned just Fasai, and I think he has completely earned all of this recognition. He has such great burst off the edge. But the two plays that stand out to me were him making a cross-field tackle in the run game and him making a play on a kickoff uh, as well. The other side of it, though, too, is I don't know if Cam Samples get enough credit. He's one of the Bengals' fourth-round picks. And Sample, again, set strong edges on the run game. Played with energy and hustle. On top of that, because um, Larry Ogunjobi was out, he was the Bengals' first team inside defensive lineman in pass rush situations. And then he, of course, played the entire game. Cam Sample can do a lot in that role. Him and Asai and Josh Tupo taking a step forward. And hey, even Darius Hodge, even if he doesn't make the team, the Bengals look like they've found some new push in the past game. Yeah, and I absolutely agree a thousand percent. That's one thing that they, anybody who has watched the Bengals, heck, for the last three years knows that they just haven't gotten pressure on uh, the pass rush, uh, from the pass rush. Uh, I think they depended too much on Gino for too long a time. I thought Gino did, you know, was one of the very best, if not the single best interior defensive lineman the Bengals have ever had. I don't think many people would argue with that. But it is like... They expected him to do too much for too long. And then finally, this offseason, they realized we've got to remake the defensive front. 
We absolutely have to do that. Yes, they brought in three or four uh, veterans in the secondary, but the moves they made along the defensive line seem to really have shaken things up. And that's exactly what they needed, to be honest, because, you know, year three of the steam with Lou Anarumo, you could argue, though, that the defense has mostly been pieces he inherited until yep. this Now, I think with the defensive ends in particular, you're seeing some very interesting things. We've seen it in camp. We saw it in training camp. We saw it in preseason. Defensive ends are standing up a lot more this season. Defensive ends are lining up on different sides of the line of scrimmage more often. Famously in practice, Trey Hendrickson dropped off the line of scrimmage and intercepted Joe Burrow. We're seeing a lot more of that. And since there's so many new pieces that are athletic and versatile, they can just do more, and there's a lot of potential that comes with that. So the reason that uh, is so critically important, and we'll get to Osai's injury in just a second, but the reason that is so important is what have we heard about the Bengals' ability to cover tight ends and, and running backs uh, in the flat? It, not good. I mean, a lot, and I said, tweeted this on Saturday night during the game, but a lot of NFL teams have this problem defensively right now. They don't have speed and athleticism to cover smaller, quicker, uh, or bigger uh guys off the line of scrimmage and uh, that's one thing I think you know if you get a Trey Hendrickson and he drops occasionally in coverage to help with the linebacker um, that can really give some depth uh, to the Bengals or give some quality to the Bengals ability to cover those guys out of the backfield and that comes back to with what you're saying though a lot of that falls back on the responsibilities of the linebackers and also Von Bell in a lot of ways I consider safety Von Bell like half a linebacker because he plays in the box so much because he makes so many tackles in the run game. Um, But specifically, I think with Jermaine Pratt and Von Bell in particular, I don't know if the Bengals have two players who have taken greater steps in their past coverage abilities this year. Pratt might not play on third downs, but early on first and second downs, he can do more against tight ends and running backs in the middle of the field. And then Von Bell, I think we've seen in training camp has just been a different player in, uh, in the past game. And then Bell, even though we're talking about versatility, he blitzed off the edge in the preseason on that one deep ball Tom Brady threw to Antonio Brown. So the Bengals are actively trying different things in the middle of the field. And for a defense that you you said it, aside from the pass rush, in addition to the pass rush, had a huge weakness in the middle of the field for the last few seasons. They're trying something different. Whether think- it all works comes down to personnel, but uh, the Bengals are giving themselves a shot. I always have felt defensively, if if you can pressure the quarterback and make him make the play, make the pass before he wants to make it, it helps your secondary immensely. And they and all the guys in the secondary, starting with Jesse Bates, have made that point. They realize that all three levels of the defense are connected, and if you can get pressure on the quarterback sooner. Uh, it means that the uh, secondary, the defensive backs can play tighter coverage, which if you ask a defensive back, Charlie, and I'm sure you have, they like to play close bump and run coverage. They like to have the guy in their sights right from the break off the line of scrimmage. It's kind of like offensive linemen love to run block. Well, defensive backs love to have engagement right off the line because they feel like they can keep a track on the guy. And as long as they don't get behind them, it's just a better feeling. Yeah. And I mean, the Bengals do have, you know, when they got went out and signed the guys that they did in the secondary, I'm thinking of Trey Wayne and Mike Hill in particular, 
Uh, and a woozy, yes, all, well, all three. No, no, but, so Chidobi Awuzi, I think, is in a different conversation. I'll get to him in a second. Okay. Um, when they signed Trey Waynes and Mike Hilton in particular, what was really sold was their physicality in the box and near the line of scrimmage. I think the stat with Trey Waynes was like he famously didn't miss a tackle in Minnesota, and he was the best tackling cornerback, and his physicality was what the coaching staff really valued the most. Mike Hilton, of course, thinks he's the best blitzing cornerback in the league. I think he's going to do so much for the Bengals containing mobile quarterbacks. And he is as physical as it gets in the box. Awuzie, I think, is in a different conversation. He, I think, is a prototypical cover corner that they're seeing as the William Jackson replacement. Yes. But with the two uh, areas that you just mentioned, with bump and run, with physicality in the box, you know, Lou Anarumo is a defensive backs guy, and he clearly values those skills because he went out and got Waynes and Hilton, two players who are known for their ability to make plays in those small spaces. Now, uh, we have to talk about uh, Osai's, Joseph Osai's uh, wrist injury, right wrist injury. When he initially injured it in the uh, third quarter and he got up slowly, did you know right away that he had uh, banged up his wrist? Yeah, he was holding on to his wrist. Then he went, a trainer, a couple trainers actually looked at him on the sideline. He was holding his hand for about five minutes. Then he went into the blue tent for about 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, a common thing to think was, why was he still in the game? Hadn't he proved enough? Uh, But Zach Taylor said he really was focused on getting the rookie's feet wet. I don't think many people played more than a signed sample in Tyler Sheldon on, uh, on Saturday. So, you know, of course, we're still waiting for more information with Joseph Asai. There hasn't been a ton of information from the Bengals yet. But whenever he's healthy, I think he's already done enough to prove that he's going to be a part of the defensive line rotation. Yeah, he's going to be an impact player. That's absolutely that's the best way you could put it, Charlie, is that he is going to be part of the rotation. I mean, not you know, this isn't like 1971. Okay. You don't have 11 or 12 players on defense and that's all you have. You have rotational players coming in and out left and right, keeping everybody fresh. And you're talking about needing probably 15 to 17 uh, defensive players to get through a game effectively. And Osai is going to be part of that rotation. I think, you know, the good news is it's not a lower body injury. It's not a knee. It's not an ankle. It's not a quad or soft tissue issue. Uh, for a sigh, it's a wrist injury. And it's probably if we um, can uh, believe uh, Dave Lapham and certainly no reason not to, he travels with the team and is incredibly well connected. It's a situation where he fractured it. There might be a hairline fracture in there. He might have to have uh, some type of minor surgery, some procedure, but to get him back on the field, there's optimism that he'll be back in time for the opener against Minnesota. And again, that's huge because the Bengals' biggest weakness on defense, I keep saying something different, but they all were biggest weaknesses, was really depth. And by like the fifth game of the season, you had guys starting off, starting who were free agents off the street a few weeks before your Armani Bledsoe's, your Christian Covington's who were, you know, last minute trades right before the season started. In the secondary, your Jalen Davis's and your Tony Brown's and your LaShawn Sims's. Um, the Bengals just had guy after guy, Freedom Akinmoladun, uh, starting in those roles. And uh, the Bengals clearly now were more well positioned at this point of the season than they were at this point last year. No question. And look, if you look at any successful team, uh, it comes down to depth. And you're going to need more, many, many more than just the 11 
uh, going out, uh, taking the field defensively every game. You're going to need um, two, in some t- in some cases, three players deep at certain positions. Certainly along the defensive line, you need that. And I think the Bengals have that. And I think they feel very confident that they can show different looks on defense that they haven't been able to do uh, in the past. The turnovers. I want to get to this, uh, Charlie, speaking with Charlie Goldsmith of the Cincinnati Inquirer. Follow him at Charlie G double underscore at on Twitter. Um, they need to address the turnovers, both creating them, which I think they're the way they were swarming to the ball on Saturday night and have been in uh, practice and in camp all training camp so far. I think that's a positive. I think they're going to be able to do that. They need to be able to hold on to the ball. And I'm not, I was not encouraged with what I saw on uh, Saturday night. I think the coaching staff needs to get tougher uh, mentally on the guys carrying the rock. You know, there were, I think, just from my perspective, some things to be legitimately, you know, disappointed about in the preseason opener. For example, the amount of times the offensive linemen were on their back, Um, the amount of times that a quarterback just made a questionable decision to a receiver that wasn't in the area. Um, I go back to a few offensive linemen being on their back a number of times or or out of position. And, um, you know, just other things like that. The one thing that I'm not coming away concerned about with the offense is the turnovers. I mean, Samaj P. Ryan dropped one ball at the last second as he was falling down. He's never been a big fumble guy. And then Mike Thomas, you know, kind of in a wild sequence of events, uh, got stripped. You know, those are guys who could play, what, 15, 20 snaps a game for the Bengals this season? Understood. I, under, I totally get where you're going with it. On the surface, it's not a problem. To me, though, the coaching staff should use those turnovers as a lesson for the entire team, not just for those two players, not just for the backups, you know, because they may not see a lot of action uh, during the regular season. But what I want to get across, if I'm a coach on that team, especially offensively, Brian Callahan, Zach Taylor, you name it, Frank Pollock, I want to get across the fact that we need to possess the ball, hold on to the ball, and everybody needs to be responsible for making sure that guys don't come from behind and strip the ball. I think there was another play. I don't know if it was Mike Thomas or somebody else. Who, oh, no, excuse me. It was on a uh, kick return where uh, the ball carrier for the Bengals was nearly stripped from behind. I can't remember who it was. It might have been um, – uh, help me out. Um, Puka William. Uh, no, Puka didn't play. Well, it was Phillips Taylor. It might've been, I think it might've been, um, Darius Phillips who was almost stripped from behind on a return. The point is there has to be a, an emphasis on ball security and not just telling us in the media, there has to be some type of penalty enforced. If these guys put the ball on the ground, even in practice. I think we just have a different perspective on that. To tie back to the offensive line, like I don't believe that Frank Pollock saying one message can fix an entire unit. I think it takes individual growth and player development from every player. And I believe the same way about turnovers. You know, I think the way to stop turnovers is by coaching players individually and improving with players individually on specific things instead of, you know, making it the message of practice. I will just say to your point though, like, Every day they do start practice with the running backs and receivers with ball security drills. There's the ball on like the leash and the coach tries to tug the leash away with the running back as he's holding onto it. Wide receivers coach Troy Walters has uh, 
a boxing glove on a pole and he punches at the ball with the pole and that's how they start every practice. So these things like the Bengals know that ball security is important. It's possible, you know, Mike Thomas did have a couple ball security little issues last season of play against the Baltimore Ravens comes to mind. Uh, Samaj P. Ryan, I don't remember as much, but um, uh, again, I think it's more individual, those things that like, people say the Bengals had turnovers. Well, there were those two and then two bad interceptions by backup quarterbacks. I don't see that as, you know, the biggest takeaway from a following perspective compared to some of the other things I mentioned earlier about the offensive line, about the inability of the run game to get vertical. Uh, I think that was an under the radar issue as well and a more significant issue than, uh, than fumbles. I am glad you brought that up because that is something Brian Callahan brought up with us on uh, Monday when he was talking to us about uh, Chris Evans, who I thought, and you, you and I both thought that he had some really impressive moments. The one cutback run that he had for, I think, four or five yards was very, very impressive. Isaiah Prince had a great seal on that. Um, I think uh, uh, tight end, can't remember his name right now, also had a really good job, uh, did a really good job in sealing the outside. And it was just a great cut cutback block, uh, cutback run upfield. But the point that uh, Callahan made was that Chris Evans needs to realize this is the NFL and he's not going to be able to uh, pick his spots as deliberately, I think is the best word to use. Um, he, he's going to have to hit, see something and go. Don't think about where you're going to run. Just go to that spot and get upfield. And I think that is exactly to your point, Charlie, that the vertical run game has to be better. And with Chris Evans in particular, just because he got most of the carries during that stretch, like when I went back and watched the film, what really stood out was he was trying to do too much a lot of times. There'd be a spin move, then a juke, then another juke, then a cut through. And it's really impressive that Chris Evans can do those moves. There is potential there. And he showed that he you know, he came in, everyone said, oh, he's going to be such a pass, good pass catcher right away. Well, he showed that he has potential outside the tackles as well and combined that with, I thought, a really good game of pass protection. Now, though, like we mentioned, he tried to do too much. Sometimes it's, and I think what Joe Mixon is best at is just picking the first move and going with it. And uh, that's Chris Evans' next step. He's a rookie and he hasn't had a lot of carries even over the last five seasons so, you know, he obviously has plenty of time. I think Samaj P. Ryan is pretty locked into the backup running spot right away. Evan, certainly you like what you're seeing from a six-round pick. Um, but just in general, you know, uh, uh, definitely opportunity to improve in the run game with the exception of that last drive. Jacques Patrick, I w- we're not talking enough about him. And he, I believe the numbers were 17 carries uh, for 71 yards. He And he looked real strong at the end of the game. Uh, he was the one who helped uh, run out the clock, I believe, um, before the uh, Cam Sample uh, uh, sack uh, of the Tampa Bay quarterback to actually end the game. But I, I was very impressed with what I saw from Patrick on the ground. You know, he's one of the cooler stories in Bengals camp, I think. The Bengals brought him in last year because no preseason no, he'd never been tackled until yesterday. And there's not a position where you can't judge a running back without being tackled more than running back. Um, but on the flip side, though, I do think that Jock Patrick does have an uphill climb to make the roster. He's a, I, I was impressed with his physicality as a downhill runner, just a yep. loser, a thumper. 
but how much opportunity is there for a player like that in the Bengals scheme? Uh, specifically because, like, if they're up by a lot, Joe Mixon, I think, is going to be getting those carries until it's a blowout because I think what well, Joe Mixon's also best at is running out the clock. And I think that Samaj P. Ryan and um, Chris Evans, and to an extent, Travion Williams, complement that in much more interesting ways. But if Jacques Patrick ends up being your practice squad running back, heck, that's a role that Samaj P. Ryan was kind of in, like, two years ago. He's relayed that into a backup role with the Bengals by becoming their best pass protector. So as Patrick continues to develop, you know, maybe he's a developmental guy to watch. I actually thought that, uh, you know, the Bengals, one of, one of the things they showed on Saturday night was some resiliency when things didn't go their way. The pick six, obviously, that um, Shermer threw uh, in the fourth quarter that gave Tampa Bay a fighting chance. And then the two-point conversion made it a two-point game, 16-14. And the Bengals come back and they get – a field goal from Austin Siebert to make it 19, uh, 14. And that's the kind of, those are the kind of little things you want to see from the Bengals this year, the ability when a game gets tight and we've heard ad infinitum about how the Bengals cannot close out under Zach Taylor. They lose all of these, uh, one possession games. I think it was 13 straight, uh, to start, uh, Taylor's career in Cincinnati. Um, they have not been good, uh, late and close. And I saw something on Saturday night, even though it's a preseason game, it's on the road at Tampa Bay, defending Super Bowl champions. They were able to close out the game. I see it this way, too. You look back at the games the Bengals lost last year. Like, for example, the week two against the Browns, they lost that game because they couldn't stop the run. Week one against the Chargers, they lost that game before uh, that last minute drive fell short because the offensive line wasn't holding well, holding up well enough to drive down the field. Um, You can go on and on down the list uh, in those close games. Like the Bengals addressed, I think the biggest issues that they lost close games. You know, it's funny. The one game that stands out is when they won. I think it was week 16 against the Texans all year. They'd been waiting for that one big play to seal out the game and prevent the game winning drive. Quick tangent, the Browns game at home at Paul Brown Stadium. Bengals are winning with like 40 seconds to go. Baker Mayfield throws a wide receiver his first touchdown, and the Bengals blow the game in the last minute. All season, the Bengals had been waiting for that one last defensive play, that one special game-winning play. And, you know, what happened in week 16 was Hubbard got his, a strip sack, and Sean Watson. Well, the Bengals addressed a lot of those you know, lack of big play areas and explosive plays for the defense is such an important thing. And I think that especially is going to give the Bengals such a better chance to win late close games and be more resilient this season. What do you think of the kicking competition? I I know uh, that uh, when I tweeted out um, the comment uh, over the weekend that, um, you know, for those, uh, I believe it was, uh, I don't know if it was Darren Simmons. Help me out here. Who had, who said that uh, for those who really want to see a, a kicking competition, we've got a good one here in camp. I thought that was uh, pretty hilarious to watch on Twitter. Uh, a lot of people say, I hope he can't be serious, meaning that um, obviously Evan McPherson has had a great camp, had a great performance on Saturday night, but Austin Siebert is also, as I said, he had the, uh, game ceiling field goal, if you will, on Saturday night. It's been interesting to watch those two kickers kick and really help one another out and, you know, kick side by side in camp. 
Yes. So I don't pretend to be a kicking expert at all. So my approach to this training camp kicking battle has been Evan McPherson until he gives it a reason for it to be not Evan McPherson. Hmm. But then even for someone like myself, who again is very new to evaluating kicking battles, I've come away impressed with Evan McPherson. It's been that obvious that he's a good kicker so far. Kicking the ball over the net the other day in the game, uh, in practice, like rarely missing, except when he's gone back to, I think, once at 54 and once in 60. When he missed that 54-yarder, he said, no, get, and his teammates said, give him one more chance, one more chance, give him one more opportunity. Uh, he clearly has left an impact on that group. And from my, again, amateur kicker evaluating mind uh, is exactly what you want from a kicker. Yeah, I, I just think it's been interesting to watch the fan reaction on social media, namely Twitter, um, to fans who uh, think, you know, we don't want to see what happened uh, three years ago happen again with uh, Evan McPherson, and I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I think all Evan McPherson has done is kick extremely well. So now here's where we go looking forward. During the preseason opener, it was a legitimate rotation. Play in, play out. McPherson took the first kick. Cyber took the first field goal. Even in warm-ups, they were rotating back and forth. Has McPherson done enough that now you want to see him get the rhythm a little bit over the course of a game and give him even more opportunity in the second preseason game to get his feet further wet in the NFL? All right, let's move on to when Joe Burrow should play. Uh it was Zach Taylor announcing after practice on Monday that he definitely will not play on Friday in Washington. Um, and uh, there's still TBD on whether or not he'll play against Miami. I think he will play against the Dolphins because I do think uh, Burrow for sure and Zach Taylor most likely want to get his feet wet before he takes a first live snap against the Vikings on September 12th. Do you agree? I disagree. I would not play Joe Burrow in the preseason. I think that as we saw with the first team offense, there's just so limited opportunity that matters. I think that Zach Taylor has said he sees a trend of starting QBs, regardless of injury situation across the league, not playing in the preseason. I think that could apply to Joe Burrow, regardless of whatever injury he had last season and regardless of how healthy he is right now. And I think that the narrative of Joe Burrow having a bad start of camp because he couldn't feel the rush has been so put to rest uh, by the way he's played specifically over the last week and a half. And then finally, like Joe Burrow went through his pregame routine in Tampa. He was the first player on the field like he always is, making short warm-up throws to the sideline, warm-up throws to the sideline, then ramping all the way up to 50-yard deep bombs down the field. Um, then he went through pregame stretches with the rest of the team, high knees, all that kind of stuff. So Joe Burrow is getting the game-like simulation. He doesn't need the game itself, I think, because he has had such a strong response from training camp. So I disagree completely with this. Um, I think that if you're Joe Burrow, you need to be able to stand in the pocket and trust the guys and five guys in front of you. And I think there's legitimate concern as to not on the outside necessarily, but certainly on the inside um, with if it's going to be Trey Hopkins and obviously Michael Jordan. And, you know, we assume Quentin Spain on bookending the center position at the guard. Um, I, I just think that Burrow would feel better if he 
is facing, you know, a couple of live bullets in preseason, knowing that, okay, I got the tempo of the game. I'm trusting these guys in front of me uh, with another team on the other side, not just, you know, our defense on the other side in practice, uh, that they're going to protect me, keep me upright. I'm going to be able to step forward in the pocket. That's the one thing I'm going to be watching for, uh, Charlie, is whether or not uh, Joe Burrow can step forward in the pocket and then step into a throw. The times that I've seen him struggle in training camp, he has not looked comfortable doing that. And he has gotten rid of the ball a couple of times a little too soon. And we've seen overthrows. Those are things that we did not see before he got hurt uh, last year in Washington. So what I love about this conversation is it's truly a matter of opinion, like literally NFL head coaches probably could have an even more heated argument about this than us, about the merit of playing your starters in the preseason, let alone starters coming off injured. Um, So uh, again, it comes down to a matter of opinion and what you value. I don't see enough value in the preseason in one series itself. And I see Joe Burrow as having done enough during training camp. And, you know, I'm not sure I'd play Joe Burrow in the preseason next year, the year after that, or ever again. That's just my stylistic philosophy on the NFL and the value in the preseason and the role of quarterback in the preseason and how much you can get out of it. Uh, But again, like I'm saying this, but like 20 NFL coaches and yourself completely disagree with me. And that's totally fine. It literally is a matter of opinion of the way to get yourself most ready for the season. It's the uh, rest or rust debate that has defined sports analytics for the past millennia. Well, uh, I'm going to wrap up discussion here by allowing you to talk about something that's not Bengals related because it is my podcast and I can do whatever the hell I want. That's what I love about it. You had the uh, privilege to cover uh, Joseph Daniel Votto on Monday night at Great American Ballpark just down the street from uh, Paul Brown Stadium. And uh, you went there thinking uh, you were going to cover Jose Barrera, who got called up, correct? Yeah, correct. And so it turned into, instead of Jose Barrera, which you did right, of course, for the Inquirer, uh, it turned into a night to really appreciate uh, one Joey Votto, who's going to be 38 on September 10th. What's been so memorable about Joey Votto's season is how many of those nights he had. It's incredible. He became the second MLB player in MLB history to get his 300th homer, his 1,000th RBI, and his 2,000th hit the same season. On top of that, Joey Votto homered in seven consecutive games, one off from the MLB record. And you can see how much you can see. You can see how much of those. Do you want to keep going or sorry? No, keep going. Uh, Just, you know, one of those annoying interruptions when somebody calls and they shouldn't. It's just crappy timing. Go ahead. Continue. You can see how much each of those individual moments meant to him. Joey Votto is having more fun this season. He's showing more emotion this season. And the Reds are winning. He literally counted the years that the Reds were losing between 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. And uh, the result has just been the kind of season and not capstone because Joey Votto's not done, but, you know, another, you know, another landmark in one of the most Reds, memorable Reds careers since the 70s. There's no question about that. And I think it's going to be interesting, you know, having uh, been back here now many, many months uh, after 28 years in New England and covering all the success there. It's great to watch both the Reds and Bengals battle for the PR 
uh, and for the media spotlight, right? And, you know, Bengals and Reds have been through very, very difficult uh, five to seven year period, especially after the Bengals started 8-0 in 2015. Uh, It's been kind of all downhill since then, ever since, you know, the Vontez perfect hit on Antonio Brown. Um, The city hasn't been the same. And that was obviously the same year as the All-Star Game at Great American Ballpark. And it's just great to be back here watching both teams and both both organizations uh, on the rise. I really agree with that. You know, it was a stretch, a stretch where the relationship between the Bengals and the city and to an extent between 16 and 18, the Reds in the city were both tested and I'm trying to think like there haven't been many windows like this where the Reds with Nick Castellanos and Votto and India and the Bengals with Burrow and Chase and Mixon and Boyd and Higgins had cores that the city related to so strongly. And uh, I think there are more like there are more guys now than ever who like kids will be wearing jerseys of even more than the 2013 team where, you know, Again, A.J. Green and Geno Atkins could be Hall of Famers, but people didn't relate to those two and Andy Dalton and Carlos Dunlap in quite the same way um, that people are relating right now to the Reds' core and to the Bengals' core. And, you know, it's a young core in both cases. It's a very young core in both cases. And I think that's what's got everybody excited in town and should have everybody excited in town. That's what sports is all about. And I think a lot – but the Reds and Bengals – got old very quickly and had to retool. And, you know, you might make the argument, maybe the Reds did it a little quicker uh, than the Bengals did, but I think Joe Burrow changed all of that. And I think that's why to me, Charlie Goldsmith of the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Bengals getting off to a good start this season is so crucial. I think they have a chance to win their first six games. And yes, that includes the Green Bay Packers. I think the schedule is very favorable in the first half, not so much in the second half. And they've got to make their hay early on. And if they start off strong, that gives a young team confidence that, hey, things are different this year. We are playing uh, different on the defensive side of the ball. We're creating turnovers, whatever it is. And, and Joe Burrow proves himself to be healthy and really hasn't missed a beat. Kind of like Carson Palmer did back in 2006 when a lot of people wondered, could he come back? And what did he do? He threw for 4,000 yards. Real quick, to go back to where you started that conversation, you hit on something I've put a lot of thought into, and it's that the theme of this decade uh, for the Reds and the Bengals combined have been great cores at the beginning that the team held on for for too long and stalled a rebuild that then took the rest of the late 2000s to get out of. Yep. The Reds famously, you know, it's been well reported, Bob Castellini wasn't as thrilled about trades for guys like Jay Bruce and Johnny Cueto and Todd Frazier on the All-Star game. And the Bengals uh, stalled their rebuild, I really believe, by not being aggressive on the forefront of trading Dunlap and AJ and Andy Dalton and ended up getting basically nothing for them. Of course, Geno Atkins in there as well. Uh, But now they have both teams have as exciting, maybe a little less, eh, not as exciting in the Reds case or more exciting in the Bengals case uh, cores that they had than they started the 2010s with. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, chatting you up, Charlie, and it will uh, also be uh, wonderful to uh, get to know your new beat writer at the Cincinnati Inquirer. How much have you spoken with Kelsey Conway? Great meeting yesterday. 
couldn't look forward to working with her more and hope everyone's just checking out the Cincinnati Inquirer, uh, having, having a lot of fun over there. Yeah, it, it's a, a great institution. Obviously, I grew up with it here. Uh, you went to Seven Hills. I went to Indian Hill, but um, we'll, we'll keep that for another conversation. But we both know uh, that the Cincinnati Inquirer is a, an institutional paper of record uh, for Cincinnati, you know, covering the uh, Boston sports. Boston Globe was very much the same way uh, for all the teams up in New England. But uh, have a person like Kelsey Conway, who's covered the Super Bowls. Uh, I actually spoke to her on, on uh, Monday after practice. We had a very brief conversation. We'll get into it more uh, down the road. But uh, she was in the stadium uh, for Super Bowl 51 and uh, said, do you remember that game? And I'm like, I-, I remember Super Bowl 51 as the most difficult game I ever had to write on deadline. Because it was, as everybody knows, it was 28-3 with a two- Two eleven to go in the third quarter, and you know Dante Hightower strip sacks Matt Ryan, and the whole game changed on the dime. That was my toughest game I ever had to write, Charlie. You know, I never thought of it that way. That would be an incredibly awful game to write on deadline. So I give you credit. Yeah, it w- but it was fun. It was memorable, and I-, I would say certainly it was one of the top three experiences I had co- covering sports in New England along with uh, obviously the 04 Red Sox and uh, a couple of the other Super Bowls thrown in there as well. Well, it's been great talking with you, Charlie. want to thank everybody uh, for listening to this episode, episode number five of the Jungle Roar podcast. You can download it wherever you get your podcast. That would be Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify, as well as some other great sites. So just Google Jungle Roar podcast. want to thank our great guest, Charlie Goldsmith of the Cincinnati Inquirer. Follow him on Twitter at Charlie G double underscore. For Charlie Goldsmith, I'm Mike Petralia. Keep that jungle roar.